Welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip and Robert, and we're on our fourth and I believe final episode of Dwight Eisenhower, the thirty-fourth president of the United States. We just finished off our last episode. Eisenhower was. We talked about his election as president. We talked about some of the domestic politics of the time. How he was considered a. Republican, progressive, he protected the New Deal. He also upheld court orders for desegregation. He did oversee a issue with immigration that has some parallels to our immigration situation today, but is not exactly the same. And we finished off talking about McCarthy, an introduction of McCarthy, who he was, and what the, and the, I guess the kind of fear-mongering that he created concerning the communists uh, uh, here at home and who he targeted. So we're going to start with that, then we'll go forward, I guess, talking about the infrastructure bill or the infrastructure that... Um, Eisenhower did that we alluded to in an earlier episode, and then we'll do foreign affairs and a wrap-up of him as president. So do you want to begin with the McCarthyism? Right. So, uh, before beginning with McCarthy and listening to that summary, I'd like to make a few comments contrasting the sociological conditions in the 1950s with contemporary America in the teens of the 21st century. During the 1950s, um, demographically, the United States was much more uh, white. Um, Censees tell us that the segment of whites in our population was 86, 87, you know, high 80s as percent. Uh, most of the country, because African Americans tend to be, uh, or at least back then, tended to be in an arc running roughly from, say, uh, Philadelphia or New York in the Northeast in an arc along the coast, across the southern Piedmont and the coastal plain of the Gulf states, out to San Antonio or so, uh, small pockets of uh, African Americans in places like St. Louis, Detroit, Cleveland, uh, Chicago, but essentially a very uh, confined geographical range due to segregation, due to all the factors of racism and discrimination that we talk about. Uh, So even though desegregation was a, a strong concern in the Eisenhower White House, and even though, as uh, we described, 
the deportation of primarily Mexican nationals working in this country without papers uh, reached a peak. American public opinion was very exclusionary, was very much oriented toward whites. It was English-speaking. It had an international perspective. It had a national perspective. But essentially, the liberal consensus was a white consensus, uh, an idea that put civil rights in a separate category that had to do with the Negro dilemma, uh, did not view Hispanics as an integral part of the country. Maybe uh, they were considered a more exotic or uh, very much a subculture in our country. So it was a, a, a very different mindset. So when we think of McCarthyism, and the impact that Senator McCarthy had on the country, it very much was a central issue. Even though we had these big issues engaging people of color, and even though they are likely to be the majority in our population very shortly and probably for the rest of our national existence, um, at the time, as I said, their concerns were very compartmentalized, very much considered a specialized aspect or a particular almost roped off area of presidential concern. So McCarthyism, because uh, Senator Joe McCarthy was ambitious, had a strong following of the Republican Party, hit on the resentments that the Roman Catholics, the largest minority in the United States, felt about their status. Uh, and because he was so virulently anti-Bolshevik, anti-communist. Uh, McCarthy appealed to a very broad segment of the American electorate. And while we can look at Stevenson and call him a National Party nominee and think because of his titular status as a National Party nominee, that he probably had a broader, bigger national following than McCarthy, we find on examination that Stevenson's following was very, very fragmented. It went from Northern blacks, who were beginning to become quite vociferous, about civil rights and desegregation and other issues of racial equity to Southern Bourbons who were white supremacists and arch segregationists. 
So Stevenson always, and other National Democrats, always had to tread this tightrope between their Northern supporters, liberals who supported African Americans, uh, African Americans themselves, Southern segregationists, and then other various smaller constituencies such as ethnic democratic voters in large cities who were divided by their ethnic loyalties, Jews, and were, so on. Were, were blacks, with black voters voting democratic in the time of Stevenson? Probably we were getting to the point where we could depend on black majorities voting democratic. But, but it was still the party where the segregationists mostly resided. So you have a black coalition, I mean a coalition that includes black voters and segregationists. So northern blacks were probably more heavily democratic than southern blacks. Southern blacks probably still were predominantly Republicans. And southern blacks only voted if they had pretty good status in their communities. The average uh, Did black, black individual probably wasn't allowed to vote. What were the demographics? What percentage of voters? Were, I mean, what percentage of citizens were black? Probably around 13 same, same percent, as something like that. Same as that. Well, the, the, the black percentage is pretty stable. Mm -hmm. uh, the Hispanic percentage, the Asian percentages have gone up. Mm -hmm. Precipitously. All right. All right. So go ahead then and, and talk about how Eisenhower dealt with McCarthy. So McCarthy had a broad, although somewhat regionalized, appeal Northeast, Midwest. Democrat or Republican? Democrat. Republican. Republican. But the Northeast was more Republican back then. Okay. And the Midwest was probably still Republican back then. Um, McCarthy appealed to Catholics. He appealed to the Irish, who were... Uh, His home state was Wisconsin? Wisconsin. Okay. The Irish were a very burgeoning, muscular, political uh, segment back then. And to a large extent, McCarthy appealed to the Protestant middle class, who were anti-Bolshevik. Uh, not so much to the blue-collar workers who were mostly union guys who, or union families, I guess I should say, and McCarthy did not particularly appeal to them. So there's a famous incident when McCarthy was campaigning, went to the airport at Wheeling, West Virginia, and claimed to have in his pocket a list of subversive, communist subversive people in the highest echelons of the United States State and Defense Departments. And the Defense Department was still kind of a new thing. It had just been formed from the War Department and the Navy Department. So there was a little bit of mistrust there with big government, a little bit of uh, unease in the armed forces about their new uh, institutional structure. And the State Department was seen as pretty 
pretty suspicious. Um, the Russians, the Soviets, had pretty much taken over from the Baltic to the Adriatic. Everything east of a line from roughly Stockholm to Venice. Uh, so that was seen as quite scary. Uh, was, was, there, was there credible threat of the Russians putting spies and infiltrating our... Um, I mean, even nowadays you'll hear about spies in Montclair, Russian spies in Montclair. But was there was McCarthy just making this up to, to drum up to drum up support and and go on a war path, or, or was there a credible so, threat of um, so so during the thirties communist subversion during the thirties? Um, I'd say communism and socialism were quite popular. We had had not uh, like Europe though. Uh, no. We had had a large socialist party, uh, which had a third party status, gained over a million votes in the election of 1912, was severely persecuted at the end of Wilson's term and on through the 20s, but made a big comeback in the 30s during the Depression. This was a time uh, when Stalin was enacting those five-year plans over there, and all the Soviet propaganda looked good about Russia. Uh, it was very deceptive, but it looked good. Um, American intellectuals were pretty disenchanted about capitalism, were looking for different ways to organize the economy. A lot of them had elders who had been socialists, so they had a certain sympathy towards Marxism, towards Bolshevism, towards communism. And, you know, in a lot of ways it was a, a situation in which a, a revolution could have arisen. Uh, Roosevelt blunted that, pretty much put them out of business, but in a lot of ways, he put them out of business by co-opting them. So a lot of them went into went into the government, went into the various alphabet agencies formed in the New Deal, and then when World War II started and we had to expand the State Department, and we were facing uh, the difficulties of containment and so on, a lot of those people who had been sympathetic towards socialism in the early 30s were now in the stage of life where they were the people who were running government agencies. You know, in the early 1930s, they were in their 20s. Uh, 20 years later, in the early 1950s, they were in their earlier mid-40s, and they were, you know, the people who uh, were starting to take over these big agencies. So there was an actual sense that there were there were people who were actual leftists in the government. Um, as I just mentioned, Europe was split roughly in half with a very prominent, very noticeable, very palpable geographic boundary between the areas that was controlled by the Soviet Union 
in what we then called the free world. Uh, there was a huge struggle in Europe over Berlin, over Hungary, over Poland. There were still big communist parties in Italy and France, so there was always, every election, there were big rallies and big turnouts for the communist candidates in Paris, in uh, Milan, and in the provincial cities in Italy and France. And in 1949, Mao Zedong uh, succeeded in his communist revolution in China, and a quarter of the world's population immediately became communist. So we looked at this huge block of countries from the Oder River in Germany, which is pretty far west. Not as far west as the Rhine. No, but pretty far west. I mean, you know, the, the East German border, which is 35 miles from Hamburg, and all the way across to the big Diomedes Islands in the Bering Sea, where Sarah Palin could see Russia. So, from uh, her porch. Huh? From her porch. Well, I don't know if she could see it from her porch, but she could definitely see it from the Diomedes Islands. Um... So it looked to us as if like a third of humanity were in the slave states under Marxist domination. And that's what we called them back then, the slave states. So, and this all occurred very suddenly between 1945 and 1953 when I was in Archer Power. We just fought a really grueling war in Northeast Asia, in Korea. And at best, achieved a stalemate. Uh, so it was, it was seen as a pretty desperate situation. And, and McCarthy was able to tap into that. Uh, this is what... So, so in a way, it's like McCarthy's... It's like good cop, bad cop. And Dwight Eisenhower's good cop and McCarthy's bad cop. Well... I don't think it was an orchestrated thing like that. Um, I think McCarthy realized... It doesn't. I'm not saying it has to be. I'm saying, psychologically speaking, <clears throat> Dwight Eisenhower represents opposition to communism <clears throat> as a kind of figure Principled. of the light. Figure of the light. And, <clears throat> and McCarthy represents opposition to communism as a dark figure. <clears throat> well... It also has to do with their respective statuses in the Second World War. I mean, McCarthy was sitting, freezing, in the back of an aircraft, sh shooting machine guns at German fighters. Was he a junior officer? He was an NCO. Non-commissioned officer? Yes. Um, you know, presumably he saw, either in his own aircraft or when they landed... He saw dead guys coming off those aircraft. Guys who got shot up, you know, his airplane got shot. He felt the impact of the bullets as the enemy fighters tried to shoot down his airplane. He may or may not himself have shot enemy aircraft. Eisenhower lived in London and Paris, sent out orders, read about 
what was happening to people like McCarthy, gave orders, you know, and made a far bigger contribution to winning the war, but it wasn't that visceral, like, sure. I've got the enemy in my sights, sure. he's shooting at me now, kind of experience that Joe McCarthy had. Do, do you think that Eisenhower, so how did Eisenhower treat McCarthy? What was his view, and is he criticized by historians for so his we, we, treatment we, of So we, we mostly criticize Eisenhower for his lack of vigor in attacking McCarthy. When I was in college, one of my professors, a stalwart Republican who went on to become a commissioner in uh, New Jersey Republican governor's cabinet, he became the uh, commissioner for uh, environmental protection in Governor Tom Kane's cabinet. Uh, he showed us a movie in, in one of our political science classes in which McCarthy attacked General Marshall, George Marshall, and Eisenhower failed to defend him. Okay, and Eisenhower had worked for Marshall. Eisenhower was... Eisenhower and Marshall probably had a degree of friendship uh, Marshall certainly was one of Eisenhower's mentors. Mm -hmm. Didn't he? He was one of the ones who pulled Eisenhower out of planning and put him in command and gave him his shot, supported him when he had that difficult time in Africa, pushed him up so he would command Overlord. So, you know, we, we can look at, at Eisenhower. But is that a matter of personal loyalty? Eisenhower seems like an impartial, trying to be an impartial guy. He's trying to be a kind of, he's not the visceral type. He's not the overly emotional type. He's sunny. His disposition is positive. He's going to let these two fight it out. He's going to be generally agreeable. And then when so, the chips fall where they may. So there's, there's that school that my professor represented, which... Excuse me, which slight Eisenhower for not helping Marshall. But then there's another book, and uh, it's 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 an anatomy of Eisenhower's leadership style, mm -hmm. and it describes a press conference that Eisenhower was about to go and address, mm -hmm. and as he was preparing to go out onto the dais and face the cameras and the reporters, one of his aides gave him the news that there was some emergency that had arisen while Eisenhower was preparing for the press conference. Mm -hmm. And Eisenhower said, well, what is it? And the aide told him, and Eisenhower said, don't worry, I'll just go out there and confuse him, confuse the reporters. They won't, they won't be able to figure this out. We'll, we'll get it under control later, but right now, if they ask me, 
I'll just give him an answer that gives him something to write about. That was to protect who? Uh, that was to give the administration time to figure out what was going on and formulate a policy. So it, it may well be that Eisenhower was more subtle in his approach to McCarthy. That instead of taking on McCarthy head on and putting his prestige on the line and potentially being damaged, it may well be that Eisenhower orchestrated a campaign in the army to discredit McCarthy. Because McCarthy started... Uh, it's like an Obama move. Maybe. McCarthy started a, uh, a series of hearings in the U.S. Senate bringing people whom he accused of right. subversive activities. Sure. And This was in which, in which um, uh, committee? In the House, it was the House Un-American Affairs Committee. I don't remember which one it was in the Senate. And was he a senior? Was he a senator or a congressman? He was uh, McCarthy was a senator, and he was he was the chairman of that committee. And it may have been a special committee. It may have been something that they dreamed up before he got on him. this whole thing of the communist witch hunt um, doctor, basically, or or field field um, committee, like you know, field marshal. Was he a prominent senator? No, he's a drunk. McCarthy was a drunk. Yeah. This this issue made him. I mean, this was what, you know, this this was all he had going for him. And he took on the army, and the army just outgunned him. And it could well be that Eisenhower used his presidential powers and influence the army in the army, but possibly also in the Senate. To, to set up this confrontation between McCarthy and the army. So strangely enough, the army ends up stopping the witch hunt, basically. Well, I don't see what's so strange about that, but yes. The well, army. we're going to talk about it. Eisenhower later goes on to, to basically leave his presidency and in his farewell address talk about the, the fears that he has. Of, of the military-industrial complex, not the army. We're not going to talk about that. Yeah, but we got to get to that. We'll get to that. All right, so so most do most people. All right, so it's a definite open possibility that Eisenhower subtly orchestrated that. Yes. All right, so even though he, some people criticize him as for, as being not too tough on um, McCarthy, it's maybe he did give McCarthy the fatal blow, but let's say indirectly. Well, he he gave McCarthy the rope he needed to hang, hang himself, himself with. Yeah. Sure, sure. All right. Why and like a good capitalist, probably even sold in the rope. Sold in the rope, yeah. Why don't we... I do think that on some level, you'd have to think that Eisenhower, being personally opposed to communism, although knowing that McCarthy was too extreme, I mean, didn't want to come out in, in defense of communism when he's when he's opposing McCarthy. Well, McCarthy was complex because Bobby Kennedy worked for McCarthy. Mm -hmm. You know, as as a counsel. Legal counsel. Yeah. As did did Trump's mentor, Roy Cohn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
It was he, he had he had a complex legacy. Okay. Um. All right, let's do Eisenhower and and uh, China. Well, there's not a whole lot to say about that. I don't think because did he uh, rec- he never did he ever recognize the change in government? We unrecognized China after the success of the communist revolution. The unrecognized China. The government that the United States recognized as the legitimate government of China was the nationalist regime on Taiwan. Okay. The uh, Kuomintang dominated army and political dictatorship set up by Chiang Kai-shek in Taipei after they fled China after the revolution. And, you know, again, this is very complex because uh, Taiwan had been a Portuguese province that had passed on to the Japanese hadn't been recognized as a part of China since the early 18th century. And suddenly, when the fleeing nationalists show up there, we recognize it as the sole legitimate government of China. Um... And there was continuous uh, right-wing lobbying to unleash Chiang Kai-shek and arm the nationalists and support their invasion of mainland China. Did he threaten the Chinese, the communist Chinese? Again, Chiang was a very complicated figure. Uh, I attended. Uh, a lecture given by the U.S. Secretary of State Dean Rusk when they talked about the potential of Shang invading China. Shang said he didn't want to do it. He didn't have enough men. Uh, one of the Americans suggested, "Oh, we can we can nuke the Chinese. You don't need to worry about not having enough men." And Shang was totally totally taken aback and scolded the Americans said you must never you must never attack the Chinese with nuclear weapons okay so I I don't think he saw it as realistic okay that he could reestablish nationalist government over the entirety of China in his lifetime maybe you know generations hence but do you think no time soon do you think Okay. What about Eisenhower and his dealings with the Middle East? I think there was some issues with Iran. Really complicated. Is really there, complicated. Is there, an, is there an overview you can give? So, well, I mean, this is one where it's almost like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt's son, Kermit. Uh, Named after the front? 
No, the frog's named after him. Okay. Uh, engineered a coup against the popular, popularly elected Prime Minister Mosaddegh uh, in order, explicitly in order to gain control of the Iranian oil assets. Now, there he was willing, Mosaddegh is a democratically elected leader of Iran. Oh, duly elected. Duly elected. Not a religious extremist. Well, Mosaddegh was some kind of a quasi-Marxist. So not a religious extremist, obviously. No. Unless you consider Marxism a religion. Sure, sure, you could. But I'm saying not, not an um, uh, Islamicist. No, not, not an Islamist. And... But Eisenhower is not the one, and Kermit are not the ones that put in the the that are overseeing the Iranian revolution. No, the uh, Mosaddegh was deposed, and again Kermit Roosevelt had a, a, a very strong role in that. Um, and essentially, the Shah, Reza Pahlavi, took personal control of the government administered the government primarily through the military and as time went on increasingly through his uh, internal security apparatus called the SAVAK S-A-V-A-K and you know they probably still had some kind of formal elections but the ministers who controlled the SAVAK really were the ones with whom the Shah consulted to whom he delegated the uh, work of the state and who ran the country. In his defense, though, he did want to bring the level of Iranian development up to the level of Germany. And what was the issue on... What was Eisenhower's dog in the fight? Uh, again, you know, Eisenhower may have had a subtle role. He may have been supine and let... Uh, Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, uh, one the chief of CIA, the other the chief of the National Security Agency, brothers. He may have let them run that aspect of foreign policy and do what they did, or he may have controlled them and told them, you know, this is what I want you to do, and don't mention my name. I don't want to be blamed for anything. We just don't know. Was there an issue in Egypt? Uh, a man named Abdul Gamel Nasser took power in Egypt in a colonel coup. Uh, after the British left, uh, there was a king named Farouk, mm -hmm. big, fat, decadent, depraved, degenerate, mm -hmm. uh, had a lot of money, threw a lot of money around in Monaco and other places like that, and I believe he's actually in Monaco when the colonels deposed him. Uh, Nasser quickly rose as the head of the colonel's coup, took over the government as a socialist, as a pan-Arabist, joined Syria and Egypt, 
and uh, basically nationalized the Suez Canal. The, the French and the Panama, British. The way it would be with the Panama Canal. Yeah, later. The French, no, no, but that's the idea. We're going to charge you to go through the Suez. No, we're going to. It's going to belong to us now. And we're going to charge you if you want to be. Well, probably. The French and the British had owned it before then, and they didn't like the idea that these uppity Arabs were taking it away from them, and they dropped paratroopers into the Sinai, and backed an Israeli invasion of the Sinai. Mm -hmm. It's 1956. Eisenhower went totally batshit. I mean, this was one of his strongest foreign policy moves. I mean, he totally demanded that they back off, threatened that they were going to sever diplomatic ties, we're going to withhold all aid to them. Israel, this was a big threat. Britain and France, it wasn't such a big threat, but it still was enough to, to force them to back out. Uh, our relations with Egypt were ruined until the um, Yom Kippur War. Why was he so, so virulent about it? Hmm? Why was he so virulent about it? The mid-1950s were the beginning of decolonialization. I mean, we can look at China and say the communist revolution was throwing out the Western powers, mm -hmm. you know, because the nationalists colluded with the Western mm -hmm. powers. India achieved independence, Pakistan achieved independence from India. But during the 50s, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos became independent. Burma became independent. All these countries in the Middle East, like Egypt, which were nominally independent, but were extremely dependent on the European powers, asserted their independence. And all across Africa... Country after country after country after country, Libya, uh, Morocco, uh, Ghana, uh, Congo, country after country asserted its independence. And Eisenhower understood, you know, these peoples are asserting their independence, they're becoming free of European domination. If I back the two dominant European imperialists, I have no credibility anywhere in the world. So it was an adjustment to the world the way it was moving. Yeah. Okay. Indochina, and then we'll, and then we'll, uh, I guess we'll go. So again, back. Indochina was was a, a complicated situation. The French. undertook a number of campaigns against what we then called the Viet Minh, the, Viet, the Vietnamese nationalist-slash-communists. They were nationalists, but they 
took a lot of aid from the communists because all the Western powers lined up behind France. Where else do they get aid? They get it from the West or they get it from the commies. The West isn't given it to them, so they go to the commies. Um, the Viet Minh eventually defeated the French at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. Uh, one of the really paramount defeats of a Western army by a native, aboriginal, whatever you want to call it, uh, force. Mm -hmm. um, Eisenhower basically said, well, you know, French get kicked out, French are getting kicked out. I'm not getting into it. You know, I got us out of career. I'm not sticking us into Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, Hungary had a rebellion. Uh, a lot of people have criticized the Eisenhower administration for broadcasting uh, support for Hungarian independence and not following through. We incurred in Beirut. Uh, Beirut was a, a multi-sectarian country. Uh, two big Muslim sects, two big Christian sects. They had a power-sharing arrangement which went bad. Uh, they started shooting at each other. The United States intervened with the U.S. Marine Corps and helped them broker together a new power-sharing agreement which lasted up until the mid-1960s when the Palestinians overthrew the Lebanese government. Okay. Latin America interventions in Guatemala, the Dominican Republic, uh, support for the Batista regime in Cuba. Mm -hmm. uh, Nixon made a trip to Venezuela, got spit on. Let's let's um, let's do the interstate highways, the importance of that. Then you can talk about the kind of idea of the invisible hand and. Um, and Eisenhower, as a, I can think he's considered a neo-great, that assessment of him. And then just to finish off, maybe can you just touch on his relationship with Nixon and how that affected Nixon going forward? Okay. So you'll recall we talked about how... And any post-presidency. Post during during the, the 20s or the 30s, we tried to move the army uh, a few times across different parts of the country sure. and couldn't do it because the road system was in such bad shape. So Eisenhower figured, I'm going to build a road system, and it was the interstate system, you know, and you still see the signs. The Dwight D. Eisenhower interstate highway system. Um, was he thinking of it as a civil project or was he thinking of it as a military project? More as a military project, but it developed uh, also as a civil engineering project. Uh, some of the salient characteristics are limited access to the roads. You, know, you have to go to an exit to get off it. You have to go to an entrance to get on it. They're fairly widely interspersed, you know, minimum five-mile intervals. Some places a lot farther than that. Uh, they're the highest quality motorways on the continent. You know, they're always maintained. Uh, they operate in all weather. What are the main ones, 95? And, and they, and they uh, 
they loop around the cities. They don't go through the cities. With few exceptions, they loop around the major cities. Well, 95 is the, the main north-south, east coast mm-hmm. artery. And there's one in California. I can't think of the designation. Is it Highway 5? I-5. Um, there's one in California that goes like from Seattle down to L.A. or San Diego. But not the coastal drive. That's a different road. Right. Um, I-10 goes across the south from like Jacksonville to, I think, San Diego. Um, I-80 and I-90 both go across. I-80 goes I-80 from New York, New York City to San, to San Francisco. Francisco. I-90 from Boston to Seattle. And then there's other ones that go north and south and split the country in that in that way, unite the country in that way. And, I mean, the interstate highway system probably is the single largest factor in the spatial development of the United States. I mean, we did not develop the vertical cities like New York. We mostly developed horizontal cities like Houston. And it's primarily due to the uh, rapidity and ease of auto travel, automobile travel. Also kill the canal. Kill the canals, kill the railroads. Made truck driving the most remunerative job for non-college educated people in the majority of states in the U.S. And the biggest occupation for males without college degrees. So it, 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 it just changed everything, changed the atmosphere. Changed the topography Invented of the country. Sub- suburbia. Invented suber- suburbia. Put tens of millions of acres of good land under asphalt. You know, I had a lot of. Do you consider things. it a uh, overall positive or overall negative? I think it's a marvel of 1950s engineering, and it's locked us into like 1950s mentality. 1950s lifestyle, 1950s way of looking at the world, you know, and uh, Trump is a big throwback to it. MAGA essentially is the restoration of the 1950s. And oddly enough, it's not a call back to the liberal consensus of a commonwealth, of mutuality, of reciprocal benefits between the government and the people, of very high degree of economic security. It's a throwback to engineering, civil engineering, mechanical engineering uh, that is 1950s, mid-20th century uh, technology. So it's, it's you know, I, I think it's pretty much the worst of both worlds. You know, we get outdated technology How much? Mm-hmm. and we lose our... Uh, we lose our social benefits. How much did it cost? How much did it cost them to to do it? It was expensive, but it was less expensive than uh, probably railroading or uh, a a multimodality infrastructure would have been. Uh, You know, once you figure out how to build a road, you can pretty much do it everywhere, you know, and they dynamited through hills. You know, made everything pretty flat. They didn't and have the to figure that, out how to... The ones that made it were federal workers and the ones that maintained it were federal workers. Uh, states. State workers. It's, 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 it's yeah, it's pretty much uh, uh, inter, intergovernmental uh, enterprise. 
And they got paid by the federal government to do it, though? Did they get grants? The, the uh, motor fuel taxes paid for it. That's why we have fuel tax? Yeah. Okay. All right. Do you want to do this? Do you want to touch on the space race or no? So, Lyndon Johnson, in Eisenhower's second term, turned out to be one of his major political allies. So, Lyndon Johnson at the time. Democrat. Was a Democrat, the Senate Majority Leader, very dynamic figure in Washington. And he and Eisenhower had similar views on progress, on development, civil rights, the tempo, the aims. Uh, they were compatible in foreign relations. Uh, they both wanted to go into space, they both wanted a big space program. So uh, Johnson was such a master of the Senate, he was able to give uh, Eisenhower really, really good advice about dealing with the Congress, about uh, Phil, about uh, what was physically, what was politically possible. Uh, with regard to passing in the American uh, or passing on to the American people what what the people wanted, what they would pay for, what would excite them. So they got into the space program, they got into a uh, big science kick, Russians launched Sputnik. Uh, so we started, we wanted to teach all American kids a lot more about STEM. Uh, just just a more progressive way of looking at things. I mean, Johnson wanted to have a whole new, uh, new deal sort of initiative, great society. Eisenhower was willing to go along were, on limited were things. Were Johnson and Eisenhower personally friendly? I would suspect that Eisenhower didn't like Johnson very much. Eisenhower was pretty reserved, pretty decorous. He, he, he definitely liked millionaires, but he didn't seem to be very, uh, very attracted to politicians. Johnson was crass, loud, vulgar. So I don't I, I, I can't see Eisenhower really being very attracted to him. Um, can you touch on Nick? Uh, well, why don't you do the invisible hand, the idea, and then and then how and then Nixon and and that's it. So so let's let's talk about a little context for the listeners on invisible hand. That's what they call it, though. No? So go ahead. I mean, I believe the idea is that when Nick's, when Eisenhower first finished his term and, and he was seen without the perspective of history, people kind of thought of him as, I don't know about a dunce, but people thought, thought of him as delegating too much to his... Okay, so, so Invisible Hand is an Adam Smith concept that the economy works really well when everybody works for their own... Uh, self-interest. Right. 
So what you're referring to is the idea that Eisenhower kind of uh, hid behind an image of dithering, inactivity, being a little out of touch, uh, while he was actually very engaged, almost very astute, and very forceful. In a way similar to Reagan. So, um, or well, do you think that's a bad comparison? I don't think Reagan actually pulled it off. Reagan was much older. I mean, Eisenhower was 61 when he took office. One of the older Left presidents. Left office at 69. One of the older presidents, no? But Reagan was 68 when he took office. Oh, you know, they call it hidden hand. The hidden hand, yes. So, um, I, I think that was pretty much Eisenhower's operating style. That he developed it as... Uh, uh, Sakur, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. Uh, he developed it as a commander of Overlord, and he, he continued it during the presidency. Uh, did a, do- a lot of delegating, worked a lot through uh, surrogates, didn't make very clear public uh, statements, you know, made public statements which were self-contradictory and hard to interpret and uh, just played his cards very close to the vest didn't show his interest in very much Uh, didn't directly put the prestige of his office or his personal authority on the line it seemed like that was a big concern of his well try running anything from a classroom to a pharmacy to a, a machine shop and you find or a construction site you find very quickly that people have their own ideas about how to do things and there's a constant dissension there's constant centripetal forces working away from what you want to do and a bigger organization, I mean, an organization the size of the European theater or the size of the United States government, you can't know everything. You can't be sure about anything. You can't do all the work yourself. You know, you really have to do delegate a lot. And you really have to not show your hand. I mean, your strategy has to be kind of secret. So the people can't thwart you. Go ahead to go ahead to Nixon and how his treatment of Nixon affected Nixon going forward. Well, I think Eisenhower's pretty fair to Nixon. I mean, you know, the big thing is Did he recognize Nixon's gifts? That when Nixon was campaigning for the presidency, Eisenhower uh, was interviewed and was asked by a reporter what would be your what would be your assessment of the biggest contribution that the vice president Eisenhower made to, to the uh, administration? And Eisenhower said, "Well, I'd have to think about that a few minutes." But Eisenhower was thinking Nixon did a lot, and I'd have to think of how things turned out, what my priorities were, and which of the things that Nixon did I would say is the biggest. But that thing. didn't have a press ticket. The Democrats grabbed it and spoofed Eisenhower saying, being asked the same question and saying, 
give me a couple of days or give me a week, whatever the time period was for the joke. Give me a week to think about it. I'll get back to you. Right. So, but Nixon kind of took it that way, or no? Um, Nixon, I think, took it the way Eisenhower meant it. But I knew that other people were exploding it. But he, Nixon always had his ear to the ground. He had exquisitely sensitive political antennae. And he knew right away that people were taking it. Oh, yeah, you know, give me a week and I'll think about something. And, Do you think and, it shaped Nixon going forward? Do you think it put a chip on his shoulder? Nixon had a chip on his shoulder from the time he could talk. But... Nixon was resentful to the press for never giving him a break, never treating him. I mean, like, Kennedy was getting blowjobs in elevators from his secretaries. Right. You know, nobody talked about that. Kennedy had an affair with Sam Giancano's girlfriend. Okay. You know, here's Kennedy, the big mafia buster. And he's sleeping with the mafia boss's girlfriend. Okay. You know, tell me she's not getting into his head. Right. You know, I mean, Kennedy had so many vulnerabilities. And, I mean, we talk about Trump's... Dalliances. Dalliances or assaults or whatever. Clinton got impeached over it. I mean, on any given day, Kennedy did three things worse than anything any of them have ever done. Right. And nobody said a word. And Kennedy was always treated with awe. He was always considered brilliant. They laughed at all his jokes, even weak ones, you know. Uh, Kennedy was just idolized by the press. Nixon, who saw himself as much more gifted, who worked way harder, who didn't have any... I mean, Kennedy had a million-dollar trust fund. Right. Nixon had to work. Right. Nixon grew up on the poorest uh, lemon, lemon farm? Yeah. Orange farm? Lemon. Lemon farm in California. You know, uh, I mean, Nixon resented the difference between the way the press treated Kennedy and the way they treated him. Okay. All right. Let, so that would be more of it. Let me go to the farewell, some segments of the farewell address of Eisenhower, and then why don't you just speak on that a bit, give an assessment of whether you think the Eisenhower Nia Great Ranking is is valid and then we'll finish it. So this is in after Eisenhower is finishing up his second time he gives a farewell address. This is I'm gonna just take some quotes from it. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Continuing. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. 
we annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Okay, so I, I think he's giving two different messages there. In the first segment that you read, he's talking about frugality. He's making an argument which the Republican Party has kept to pretty much up until, Ray, uh, up until uh, Trump, that we should live within our means, we should be fiscally prudent. But I think one can also make the argument uh, that he was also saying that we should be frugal with our natural resources. I mean, he saw a big expansion of the auto industry, big expansion of the transportation highway network, saw the potential for waste, saw these big industries which had developed to supply Europe at the way, at the end of the world, uh, Second World War, which have creeping gigantism and are uh, encouraging massive consumption, massive commercialism. And he's warning against that, you know, protect the environment, keep the budget down, and stay within the budget. In the one with the military-industrial complex, I mean, it's a much more complicated, much more nuanced type of argument that generals, admirals, industrialists working together, these are dynamic people, these are people who are used to command, who are used to directing massive enterprises could get carried away with themselves and basically take over everything. Mm. So he's saying that the citizenry has to remain engaged. They have to be civic-minded. They have to participate in democracy. They have to serve in the military. They have to keep up on international relations. Well, they have to be aware of local issues and how the military affects it. There's that old <laughs> adage that the person that the citizenry was tired of staying awake 
and watching for the invasion of the barbarians and they put somebody in charge to watch over the city and that same person that was meant to to basically provide security for the citizenry eventually becomes the tyrant of the citizens because but, they all give up their... But he's saying that we cannot succumb to that impulse to stop being vigilant. Right. You know, he's saying we need the military-industrial complex. Right. It's going to be big. But it also is going to grasp It's going to affect power. the whole country. It's going to be very graspy. And the only offsetting thing is for all of us to be vigilant. That we got to watch. criticize it. We got to watch the enemy abroad, but we got to watch the military-industrial complex, right. and we got to resist it. Right. I mean, he did say that their influence, sought or unsought, right. should be resisted. Right. So give your all right. I think that's fair. Give your um, so we we began this, and I said that Eisenhower had perhaps the most accomplished record pre-presidential of any of the people that we've talked about, possibly any but of the But never presidents. was elected official. Not as an elected official, but as, as, sure. a, as a commander, military commander. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, that Eisenhower was a man of immense capability, very versatile gifts in terms of management, and political uh, leadership, military leadership, and the 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 knock on Eisenhower a lot, and kind of goes along with your hidden hand argument, is that he didn't really have much of a vision of America, but he did institutionalize the uh, liberal consensus and the new and fair deal agencies and initiatives that Roosevelt and Truman had started. He did work with Lyndon Johnson, built the interstate highway system, started the moonshot, NASA, uh, had various smaller bore but still significant initiatives in education, health, uh, urban renewal, uh, and he had this overarching view, which is, uh, I think, well illustrated in the two segments that you just read, of Republican government. Republican government being limited government, and Republican government being participatory government. Mm -hmm. Small r Republican. You right. know, not Republican Party, but small r Republican. Okay. Uh, constitutional government. And I think almost alone among the cohort of post-war leadership, Eisenhower had this vision of limited government, constitutional government, but highly participatory government. I mean, one of the problems with the, the Republican Party now, in my opinion, and uh, with the conservative movement is it's fairly exclusionary. It doesn't see the minorities of the United States, whether their sexual orientation, whether their uh, Indian tribes, whether their racial minorities, it doesn't see them as 
authentic American concerns, authentic things that democracy should be concerned about. Uh, they have this funny Roman type of, of view of things. Uh, I don't think Eisenhower would have shared that. Uh, Eisenhower, for the most part, didn't pander to the various groups. I mean, this was this, one of the strengths of the hidden hand. Nobody could really pin him down as favoring this group or that group. I mean, he obviously had his supporters. He obviously had groups that he felt he had to advocate for to maintain their support. Right. But you didn't see it because of the hidden hand. Right. Um, Eisenhower was able, both through his congenial personality, through the prestige of his office, through his prestige as a uh, high echelon military commander, was able to reach into American homes almost universally the way no president has done since. I mean, black people, white people, rich people, poor people, all felt a connection. He had a certain uh, magnanimity about him. Yeah. And he didn't, he didn't have, he didn't induce the visceral opposition that, say, Reagan, who had a similarly congenial personality, would induce. You know, you don't meet people who go around saying, oh, I really hate Eisenhower, he really sucked, you know, <laughs> right. really took this country, to, you know, I mean, nobody says that about him. Right. Uh, so I, I, I think the near grade is, is pretty accurate. I mean, he's not a monumental original figure the way Washington, Lincoln, Lincoln Roosevelt. Roosevelt, even Teddy were. You know, Teddy could be a, could be a great. Uh, as he, he, he was one of the most capable presidents we had. As I say, he had a very varied career. He did everything, did everything well. Uh, he definitely advanced the interests of the United States. I mean, we probably were as strong in 1963 as we were at any time in our history. And that was mainly due to the legacy of good administration, fiscal integrity or fiscal responsibility, and patriotism that Eisenhower bequeathed us. So his, his uh, influence remained well into the 70s. Um, ironically, it may be Nixon who actually cracked it and broke it. Uh, he had a huge influence on, on Johnson, probably gave Johnson the uh, inspiration for the Great Society, for the interventionist active uh, foreign policy he undertook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, didn't think much of Kennedy, but, you know, uh, that was kind of a common thing. But uh, I, th I think the near great uh, assessment is, is, is pretty close to what it should be. Fair. Where do you think we'll be going next? What, what president do, would, do you think would be fair to cover next? I would like to do Millard Fillmore and get him over with. Fillmore. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up our segments, our episodes on Eisenhower. We appreciate the listeners. And we let, me, hope, let me say one more thing. We hope I to mean, hear some the, feedback. The remark about Millard Fillmore was partially a joke. But also, Millard Fillmore was a know-nothing. 
uh, an American party uh, uh, partisan and was the f probably the first president who came along with such a strong anti-immigrant uh, political political agenda. Mm -hmm. So uh, even even though I kind of made a joke about it, I, I do think he bears study given the current developments in Washington, D.C. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. I'm Philip. And I'm Robert. And we hope to hear, like I said, any comments. And we'll be putting up new episodes soon. Thanks very much.